A bunch of years ago, uh, Holly and I were in Austin, Texas at a church, and there was about 600 kids in a deal like this. And my daughter was having fun, and my younger son was having fun. But my older son, he was not about it, man. He stood in the middle of 600 kids like this for like 20 minutes. So I leaned over to Holly and I said, you know, he doesn't have to do that anymore. It's cool, you know. But are you guys ready for Christmas? Because they are. You guys ready to go? Are you ready for the day after Christmas? Yeah, you know, warmed over death and all that stuff. In 1956, there was a 53-year-old man who woke up the day after Christmas, walked into the bathroom, looked at himself in the mirror, and thought, wow, I look very grinchy. (laughs) And so on that day, he decided before the next Christmas that he was going to write a children's book. And he says, I decided to write about my sour friend, the Grinch, to see if I could rediscover something about Christmas that I obviously had lost. And that man was Theodore Seuss Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss, the renowned children's author. His stepdaughter once said of him that on his good days, he was like the cat in the hat. He was fun and he was playful and he was, he was just a great guy to be around. But on his bad days, he was definitely the Grinch. In fact, he had a license plate he used to drive around town that just said Grinch on it. Let me ask you these days for yourself, what do you see when you look in the mirror? Okay, maybe you see some more gray hair or some lines on your face or something like that. How about this? Who do you see when you look in the mirror these days? You know, I just think in in, in my experience, every once in a while, we need to go on a journey of rediscovery. And maybe it is about Christmas. Or maybe it's about life. Maybe it's about yourself, or maybe, maybe it's about faith. Maybe for you these days, you're asking one of the questions that as humans, we all ask if we're, if we're honest at one time or another in our lives. We may be asking these days, are you really there, God? Because I don't know anymore. God, do you really care about what's going on in my life? Or God, would you please, please help me like today. At the end of the story, the Grinch goes up on this hill and he's got all of the boxes and packages and decorations and everything for Christmas. And he's got them in a sleigh and he's getting ready to like throw them off the ledge. And then he hears the sound of the who's down in Whoville who come out and start to sing. And he thinks to himself why this sound sounded merry. But it couldn't be so. But it was. It was merry, very. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, he thought, means a little bit more. And in the vintage 1960s version that I grew up watching, we see the Grinch go from the top left-hand corner to that, to that. I love that picture. And finally to that. And do you know what all that is? We talk about it all the time here at Lakeside. It's transformation. It's change. You know, a, a children's book, a silly TV program, a Christmas special, reminds us that God still 
changes lives. We just believe that at Lakeside Church. And I love, I love this, this last picture. Uh, this is this beautiful thing. And you know what that picture says to me? In the next gathering, it will tell me that I'm hungry because it'll be close to lunch. But it says contentment. And don't you want that? Don't you want contentment this Christmas season? What would it look like for you to experience that in your life? And, and, and not just, you know, during the Christmas holidays and all of that. And we've been talking a lot about finances and money in this series that we're in called Wishing Well that we're kind of closing down today. And so maybe it's not about finances. Maybe you're kind of dialed in there or, you know, you got your 401k and you, 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 you bless others with what God has given you. But maybe it's contentment in your family. What about there? How about your job or the street you live on? What about in our crazy, divisive political climate these days? What would it be like to experience contentment now? And I'm not saying that we ignore pain. I'm not saying that we kind of brush it aside. I'm not saying that we don't fight for justice every single day, that we don't extend mercy, that we don't walk humbly with our God as the scriptures tell us to do. My mom used to have this thing that she would say every Christmas, but she she said it on her 75th birthday, and every once in a while she would just pause around the dinner table or or maybe as the family was gathered in the living room, or maybe we were going on a trip somewhere together, and she would just pause and she would say, my heart is full today. Don't you want that in your life? Where in your life could you use more contentment these days? If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open to Philippians chapter 4. And a few weeks ago, I talked about Philippians and the fact that this little letter in the New Testament, which you can also find on the Bible app that we use every single week here at Lakeside, this little letter is a bit of a paradox. A paradox is something that when you look at it, it doesn't seem to be true. It's not going to work. It's false. But after you look at it, after you examine it, after you test it out, it actually is true. It actually does work. Philippians is written by Paul the Apostle, and he is in prison, and he's lonely, and he's hungry, and he's in pain. He's in emotional pain because one of his friends almost died. And there's all these things going on. He's got one friend that sort of understands him, and that's about it. And so the context of Philippians is all about pain. But the content is all about joy. I want to know about that. And at the end of the letter, he talks about contentment and how it works. And he actually says that he has a secret, and I want to kind of Look into that secret just a little bit this morning. So in chapter 4 of verse 10, follow along with me. It says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that you at last renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. In some ways, this is like a thank you letter to the Philippians. Later on, he's going to say, you were the only ones at the beginning of this whole journey 
that came to my aid. You were the only ones, the only little church community that helped me out. And so he's kind of thanking them. And then in verse 11, he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Which is an odd thing to say because Paul was in need. And so either he's faking it, either he's being a bit hypocritical, or contentment is something deeper, something internal, whatever the external circumstances are. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then one of the most misquoted verses in all of the Bible, Paul says, I can do all this. Sometimes, uh, Sometimes the translations will say all things through him who gives me strength. I mean, a lot of times we'll see that written on the sneakers of a basketball player going out to take the court, or a football player, you'll see it, or or sometimes they write it right here on those little black things they put under their eyes, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things, or sometimes you'll hear like a preacher get up and say, hey, there's nothing that you can't do. Well, guess what? There's a lot of things that I can't do, because people pull that out of context all the time. The context is pain and suffering and contentment. This is what Paul's talking about. There's something deeper for him. Paul's saying, guess what? Whether less or more, I know what it is to have enough right in here because my heart is full. I'm in prison. I'm hungry. I'm starving. I'm depressed. I'm lonely, but I'm full. I have everything I need. I'm riding high. People are coming over to my house for parties, and we're, 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 we're baking cakes, and it's great, and we have food, and it's fantastic. And I'm fine. I have enough either way. But did you see it? Did you see the secret? Because it's not there. You didn't see it. (laughs) Actually, to find the secret, we have to look in some other places. And one of the places that we actually have to start is by just looking at Paul's life a little bit. So what do we know about Paul? We know that his name used to be Saul, and we know that he used to be a Pharisee. And a Pharisee was a religious leader, a sort of a lawyer. They were experts in the ancient Jewish law, sometimes called the Law of Moses or the Torah, And the Pharisees, around the time of Jesus and around the time of Paul, had a lot of power. And they had a lot of influence. And they used that power and influence all the time. And the Pharisees sort of get a bad rap. I mean, they came into a lot of conflict with Jesus. You read Matthew 23, and he's just like, hypocrite, 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 hypocrite. You read Matthew 5, and he's like, don't be like them, don't be like them, don't be like them. He said, you look really good on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead, you're dirty, and you're empty. These were the Pharisees. Now, some of the Pharisees followed Jesus, but most did not. In fact, they were the ones who sort of led the charge to take Jesus and turn him over to the Roman government to have him crucified. They didn't like Jesus. But they they really do get a bad rap sometimes. And I really do believe that the Pharisees wanted God to bless their nation. They wanted to be free. And at this time, the Pharisees, they were not free. 
I want, I want you to imagine for a moment walking out the doors here and you walk down the steps and what you see is all sorts of foreign military power. And then imagine that you don't just pay a lot of taxes, but you pay about 80 to 90% in taxes and the whole system is absolutely corrupt from the outside and the inside. There's a bit of freedom religiously as long as you don't speak out against the leaders. But if you say anything against them, then you're done. And in the ancient world, at least this part of the world, the, the sides of the roads would be lined with these crosses and people would hang on those to their death just to show everybody who's in charge. This is ancient Israel, a people under oppression. So the Pharisees wanted to be free. And they just believed that if they obeyed the law good enough, if they could just cross every T and dot every single I, that God would return and bless them. And it makes a bit of sense when you read the Old Testament because there's all sorts of language about blessing and about disobedience. In fact, the, the whole nation had been carted off to Babylon and then they were allowed to come back and they built a new temple, but they're still under oppression and they're thinking, wait a minute, we might as well still be in exile. This is not working for us. And so they were really concerned, these Pharisees, that everybody obeyed the law. And they were particularly caught up in a section of the law called the purity laws. So the purity laws were these rules that they had to follow about what you could and couldn't eat and what you could and couldn't wear and who you could and couldn't hang out with. And, and, and in particularly, what they did is they wanted to really purify the nation. So they wanted to get rid of all of the foreigners. They would have called them pagans, but they were the ones that were the non-Israelites. And then they wanted to look at all the Israelites and say, okay, who on the inside is corrupt and impure because we're going to go after them. And so they used to watch the people and condemn the people. This is why when Jesus saw the crowds, it says that he felt compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus shows up, the first word out of his mouth is blessed. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And the Pharisees had no idea what he was talking about. Jesus hangs out with the foreigners and he says, hey, I'm going to welcome you in. He hangs out with the people that were corrupt on the inside, like Matthew, the tax collector, or Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. The prostitutes wept and, 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 and came to Jesus and the masses had their lives changed and the Pharisees didn't get it. They didn't want it. And they gave him over to Pilate who put him on a cross. So what does all this have to do with contentment and Paul? Well, Paul was a Pharisee, and he wasn't just any Pharisee. He was the leading Pharisee of his generation, and he was trained under the leading Pharisee of the generation before him. And Paul probably was a part of the Pharisees. There were two big camps of Pharisees at this time, and he was probably a Shammite, and the Shammites were the zealots. They were the ones who sometimes became religious terrorists. And this was Paul standing, watching the coats of those that were throwing rocks at this man named Stephen to kill him. He says, hey, man, you want to know about zeal? I persecuted the church. 
I would travel and I would drag people from their homes and put them in prison. And when people would vote to put them to death, I cast my vote for death. I, I just don't believe Paul ever experienced a day of contentment in his life. He worked himself, his fingers to the bone. He never had this sense of peace. I don't think he ever sat back and said, my heart is full. But then he had this encounter. He had this encounter with Jesus, and he got a taste of grace. He got a taste of love. And it was so radically different than anything he had ever experienced, and he learned a new way of life. Like our friend the Grinch, his life was transformed. And in the book of Philippians, he actually leaves a few clues behind about how he learned the secret of contentment. So if you're following along on the Bible app or you have your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 1, and I want to share just a short verse with you from there. My daughter, when she was young, she was a soccer player, and she was dynamite, man, I tell you. This girl is the most competitive person that I've ever met. She's driven, she's focused, she's hyper-focused. She was so focused in soccer that when I'd put her on the defensive end, she couldn't stay there. I would say, hey, let the other girls have a chance at shooting at the goal. Steal the ball from the other team and kick it up the field. So she would steal it from the other team, and she would go all up the field by herself, and she would try to kick it in the goal. Sometimes she stole the ball from her own team. This girl was just driven. <clears throat> These days, she, um, she draws. She's an artist. She... She writes stories. She's writing a novel right now, and she's writing a bunch of short stories, and she's got hundreds of these characters that she's created. And sometimes I'll walk in her room, and it's, it's like 2 in the morning, and she's like, I'm in the middle of something, and she's drawn, she's drawn, she's drawn. And she'll go 14 hours a day sometimes. It's just sort of the way that she's wired. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul talks about his drivenness and what drove him and what focused him for all of life. And he uses this little statement. He says, for to me, to live is Christ. For to me, to live is Messiah. It's Jesus. And to die, well, that's gain. In other words, Paul knew that meeting Jesus face to face is what he was going to do someday. And he was ready for that. And he was excited about that. And he knew that that was going to be so much better. But until then. Everything about his life would be informed by Jesus. And that is what drove him. And that's something that he had to learn to see every single person through the paradigm of Jesus, through the lens of Jesus. You know, it's hard to remain bitter when you're constantly looking through the lens of grace. When you're constantly forgiving and offering and blessing and living how Jesus lived. And so contentment, I believe one of the secrets of contentment that Paul learned is that it begins with a step of trust. Contentment begins with trust. And I don't, I don't know for you, maybe it's been a while. Maybe it's been a while since you sort of leaned into Jesus and said, hey, I, I trust you. I surrender to you. All this stuff going on in my life, it's just been a long time. I just want to put it right, right in front of you, Jesus. Maybe for you, 
Maybe for you, you've never taken that step of faith. And this Christmas season is the time for you to begin to experience that full heart that God has to offer through Jesus. That's the first secret. Paul goes on into the next chapter, and he talks about another secret. And, and in chapter 2, I sort of envision Paul's like a coach, and he's pumping up his team to go out onto the field. I, I, I was a jock growing up, so that's, that's my paradigm, right? I, you know, he, he's, he's getting them ready for the game. Have you ever seen a team work together and, like, unselfish? Like, they pass the ball I mean, it's like a work of art because so often in athletics, it's all about me and it's all about like not sharing. It's, it, it's all about I need to be more and you need to be less. Or maybe think, think like Paul's a director of a play and these actors have been training and training and training and they're going to go out on the stage for the performance of their lives. And when it clicks and everybody knows their part and everybody knows their lines and they play off each other, the audience loves it, and we are moved, and we laugh, and we cry. It's a beautiful thing. And I sort of picture Paul like that with the Philippians, and he looks at him, and he says, Here, here's some advice for you. Here's, here's what I want to talk to you guys about. In your life, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. He says, don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of the other. What would it be like if we actually followed Jesus in that pattern? Because at some point we take this step of trust towards Jesus, but guess what? We have to keep stepping. We have to keep walking. We have to keep following. And I just believe that contentment is rooted in following it begins with trust, but we get rooted in contentment as we follow day after day, month after month, year after year, and live how Jesus lived. Now, right after that passage, Paul talks about Christmas. Did you know that Christmas is in Philippians? It's Christmas and Easter all in one. It's fantastic. Go read Verse 5 to verse 11, it's beautiful. It's probably an ancient hymn that Paul grabbed that, that they sung in the ancient church. And it's all about Jesus emptying himself for you and for me. And this is Christmas. Trust, following. And then he goes on to talk about something that's not so fun. It's something that um, I don't like. I don't know if you like it. I've never met anybody that likes it. <laughs> But he goes on to talk about how contentment actually grows and flourishes. And it's a bit antithetical. It's, it, it's another paradox. It's the upside-down way of Jesus. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm riding high on life and things are good and my kids are healthy and everything's going good, man, I can be content there. I, I'm good. I'm good with that. I, I've never been like, I need more, you know? I mean, some, sometimes we're like that. Like, you get more and you want more and you want more. My personality is kind of chill. I'm like, all right, I'm good as long as I'm comfortable. Just don't bother me. Don't make me uncomfortable. And I'm good. I'm cool. I'm chill. But when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, sometimes I walk with a lot of fear. When I experience a dark night of the soul, when I go, God, I've prayed about this for 20 years and you haven't done anything Maybe your story these days is 
is dark. And I, I don't know why there's pain in your life, and I don't know why God allows all this pain, and I, I don't get all of that. I, I have some thoughts about it, but I don't understand it all. But I do believe this. I do believe that not only is God there in our pain, but much, much more, God is able to redeem our pain. And I don't know about you, but I, I need that kind of hope. Redemption is this old, archaic word. It, it, it means to take something that's old and useless and ugly and broken and to take it and to rescue it and to clean it and to fix it and to restore it, to make it something new and useful again. And this is what God has done for me in my life. I was a broken down, bitter, angry, frustrated Grinch of a 20-year-old. <laughs> and God invaded my life. And he transformed me. And I need to know that in the middle of my pain, that God is there, but yes, he will redeem my pain. He will use it for good in some way. There's this great verse in the book of Job. In the Old Testament, the book of Job is all about pain. And right in the middle of his confusion, he's confused all the way through the book until the very end. But right in the middle of his confusion, he just pauses in chapter 23. And he says, all right, for he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as pure gold. God's going to make good come out of your pain. I believe that he has the ability to do that. You see, the thing that Paul learned is that it begins with trust, it's rooted in following, but it matures through difficulty and struggle and pain. Aren't you glad you came to church today, you know, talking about pain? Isn't that fantastic? But this is the reality. You see, I'm an idealist. My personality is wired that way. Idealists are very values-driven, and they see the world, okay, everything should be here. Ideal. It's ideal. It's ideal. But the problem is, is we live in a world with reality. <laughs> so idealism hits reality. And that's Sean right there <laughs> on a lot of days. And so I, I just need to know that there's something that I can hold on to. And this is what Paul was like. He said, I want to know Jesus. He, he just wanted to know him so much. He wanted to know the ups and downs. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship. I want to be acquainted with his sufferings, even being conformed like him in his death. You see, Paul wasn't worried about death because he knew that God had that under control. And so he learned how to lean into life and live his life with all sorts of beautiful things that he never had in his former life as a Pharisee. And so he could say at the end of this letter, it's not that I'm in need because his heart was full. He had learned the secret of trusting day in and day out, of following day in and day out, and then holding on for life in the valley of the shadow of death. And he knew he didn't have to fear any evil as he went through that. So for you, what do you see when you see in the mirror these days? Who do you see when you look into the mirror these days? 
One of the things that we've been saying at Lakeside is that we want to go further. It's a rallying cry for us. We want each and every one of you to be able to go further in this journey that we're on. And so we got some plans for the new year. It's a great time of year to think about what you're going to do in 2019. And I get the whole like New Year's resolution thing sometimes falls apart, but don't use that as an excuse. God has plans, I believe, for us in the new year. And so we would just want to offer some things, some equipping things, some opportunities for you. Like Financial Peace University, we've been talking about that. If you haven't registered for that, if you haven't gone through that, then jump on board for that. We also have these mid-sized groups. They're all about connection. They're all about making friends. They're all about meeting people. They're all about laughing. They're all about connecting. We're going to have a bunch of small groups too, and we'll talk about that in January. So get ready for that. And then we have this event on the 14th of January called a Lakeside Leader Event because we just believe that if you don't pay attention to you, if you don't work on developing you, then who will? I mean, nobody can really lean into your life except for you in the most effective way. So we want to talk about leadership development, but we just believe that everyone is a leader because everyone is a person of influence and leadership is about influence. So no matter who you are, no matter what you're doing these days, we want to invite all of you to come on that night. It's going to be inspirational with music. We're going to have great food. It's going to be fantastic. We'll laugh a little bit. And you'll get some tools that night to do this journey of development in your life because we just believe that God wants all of us to go further. Amen? You with me? All right. Hey, let's pray this morning. God, I love Christmas. I love Christmas. I love the fact that you would give yourself. I love the fact that you would come and be human. It's unbelievable to me. And God, it makes my heart explode that you would identify with all of our struggles, with all of our pain, with all of our temptations. And that you would be able to love us all the way through all of our life. And so thank you, thank you, thank you for Christmas. And thank you that you died and rose again for us. God, we love you and we praise you this morning in your name. Amen.